The goal of this podcast is to enable a better understanding of music as a fundamental part of Latvian culture. Vienna Balsi means in one voice. One voice for each guest, musicians, composers, performers, and one voice when people sing together and unite under one cultural identity. We are grateful to the American Latvian Association Culture Funds for their help. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss a single episode. And now, enjoy listening. Programa Vienna Balsi, šodien saņēmam ar lielu prieku Dear Peter Izvask, thanks for being with us today. We've been planning this interview for such a long time now and unfortunately there was COVID. Uh, today, instant translation will be ensured by Mara de Lessa Vellini. Voiceover is done by Valdis Abuls. Um, to start, I will say that your reference for classical contemporary music in the Baltics and in Latvia in particular, but I also discovered through many of my interviews that you are also some kind of spiritual father for many musicians here in Latvia. Um, you explained that you were a double blast player, and we're glad you choose composition for our own pleasure and enjoyment. So, could you explain what made you choose composition instead of performance eventually? I started playing the violin as a child in my hometown, Eisputte. I learned how to write sheet music and I started to compose right after that. Somehow it felt self-evident and natural to me. The other thing is that for a long time I wasn't sure that what I was doing in fact had any value. It was very important to me personally to write, to compose, but I didn't show my work to anyone because it felt deeply personal to me. A purely personal business, if I may say so. I will tell you in a few words how I, a boy from the provincial town of Eisputte, ended up in Riga and started playing the double bass. My grandmother passed away, leaving my grandfather alone in Riga. I assume he was quite lonely, so he told me to move over to Riga. I would stay with him and go to a music school in Riga. That way it would be more interesting for both of us and Grandpa wouldn't be so lonely. At that time there were rising violin stars in Riga, like Gidon Kramer, Philip Hirschhorn and many others, 
And when I showed my playing to the teachers at Emil's Darzinch Music School, they were really not greatly impressed. They told me, okay, you can come join us, you're a musical guy, but maybe a bigger violin would suit you better. What about the double bass? It is a famous school still, even today. I didn't care. I was ready to wash the floors just to get into that music school, so I said, yes, of course, I'll play the double bass. That's a short story of how I came to play the double bass. My teacher was playing in the opera orchestra at that time, and at some point there was a vacancy in the double bass section, and I was invited to play there too. That's the short story of how I ended up to play double bass. My teacher was playing in the opera orchestra, and there was one place open, and soon I was invited to play there too, in the opera orchestra. So I started my career as a professional musician very early, at the age of 16. I studied at Darzinch school, I was secretly composing, but also playing in the opera in the evenings. Anything to do with music was a kind of eternal celebration for me. There is nothing greater in my world than music, and to be a servant of music. Actually, I would like to get a better understanding of, of all this context. My view is there was a schism on both sides of the Iron Curtain. In the Western world, some composers went very far in dissonance in contemporary music, formalism, experimenting. Uh, they were absolutely free to do so, and sometimes my opinion is they might be lost, and lost a part of the audience with them. On the other side, in the Eastern world, people like Shostakovich put their life at risk, for example with his fourth symphony. Um, in France, uh, because of all that, uh, one don't manage to understand how it was to write music in the darkness of USSR. Uh, I think we can have a better understanding through what your life has been, but also how did composers manage to meet, communicate and write to one another. Um, you mentioned Gideon Kremer, for example, and I wondered also how you get in touch with people like Arvo Pert and Alfred Schnittke. Then we have to move some 10 years forward. Due to the Soviet regime, I was not admitted to the Latvian Conservatory. In fact, it was because of my father, who was a Baptist pastor, and I didn't keep my mouth shut either. So I went to Lithuania, where I studied at the conservatory and played in the Lithuanian Symphony Orchestra. Simultaneously, I kept on writing music, which was something vital and important to me as a person. After graduating from the Lithuanian Conservatory, I still had to do the military service for one year in the Red Army. 
And then I realized that it was all fine and beautiful to be playing in an orchestra and to be living so close to music, but if I didn't want to waste my life, I had to continue my studies to become a professional composer. It's important to understand that under the communists it was like this. If you didn't have a university diploma saying that you are a certified composer, then nobody played your music at all. That meant I had to enroll at the conservatory again. This time I succeeded in getting into Riga Conservatory and I went through another five years of studying in the composition department. Uh, as an interesting side note, we were educated at that time to be Soviet musicians, Soviet composers. And for that purpose, besides the professional disciplines of music, we had to study and pass exams in such nonsense subjects as scientific communism, socialist political economy, capitalist political economy and so on. But I went through all that again, just to get my composer's diploma. While doing that in parallel, I was very attentive to what was going on in the music world, to what other composers were writing, not only in Latvia, but as far as it was possible at that time, also beyond the barbed wires of the Soviet Empire. It was, of course, quite difficult, but we developed a kind of brotherhood with the composers of other Soviet-occupied countries, first of all with our Estonian and Lithuanian colleagues, but also with Ukrainians and composers living in St. Petersburg and Moscow. We went to see each other, we listened to each other's compositions, so I was pretty well up to date on what was going on in the musical life of the Soviet Empire and even somewhat aware of what was going on in the West. Each year the Composers' Union of each Soviet Republic held a musical event which was called Plenums. What a strange word. Basically, it was a series of concerts where the latest works of the members of the Composers' Union were performed and which lasted for several days. And whenever we could, we would go to these annual festivals to Vilnius or Tallinn, but I remember going also to Kiev, Moscow and St. Petersburg, where we had the opportunity to meet the composers working there. There is one subtle thing to understand, which is that the best-known Russian composers working in Moscow and St. Petersburg, such as Alfred Schnitke, Sofia Gubaidulina, Edison Deniso, they were more tightly watched by the Kremlin ideologues just because they were better known. We in the Baltics were completely unknown to the outer world. Nobody knew anything about us, so we could feel more relaxed behind their backs. The attitude towards us was, let them simmer in their own pot. Nobody will ever know them anyway. So we in the Baltics could feel ourselves much freer than the composers in the big cities of Russia and Ukraine, where they were more tightly controlled.
Also, let me say that I was deeply impressed by the music of Polish composers of the 1960s and 70s. In Poland, there was a music festival called Warsaw Autumn, and I finally managed to get there, but it took some time and effort on my part. Every year, a group of musicians from the Latvian Conservatory went to this festival, but there was one precondition for them to go there. They had to be members of the Communist Youth Organization, or Komsomol. Members of Komsomol were regarded as ideologically trustworthy. And since I wasn't a member of Komsomol, I just had to do with the impressions and the LP records brought back by my colleagues. Thanks to this Polish festival, I got to know composers who are still dear and important to me today, like Henryk Nikolaj Gurecki, Witold Lutoslawski, Krzysztof Penderecki and some others. What's more, we could buy the scores of Polish music here, because Poland was one of the so-called Warsaw Bloc countries, and they had a very good publishing house that printed everything. So I got acquainted with Polish music both through records and through scores. That was the first thing we learned about the music that was written beyond the borders of the Soviet Empire. I first encountered Messian's music at Vilnius Conservatory. My piano teacher brought me some sheet music, published in Moscow, which was one of the movements of Messian's famous cycle Quartet for the End of Time. It was either one or two of those divinely beautiful movements that were transcribed for two pianos, and we played them in our piano classes. And all at once, I had a kind of revelation. Oh God, this is so beautiful. Oh Lord, who is this composer? To me, it was really like a revelation, because I felt an immediate kinship of soul with the author. One of the moments, either the last one where there is a piano and a cello, or the one with piano and violin, I can't remember which one, was transcribed for two pianos. We were playing it, and I said, oh, this is magnificent.
Tas bija tas pirmais. That was my first encounter with Messian. Yes. There was another thing that helped me to find out more about the music composed in the West, behind the Iron Curtain. My aunt lived in the United States, and she sent me some LP records of modern American music. And there were two American composers that I really liked. One was George Crumb, and the other was John Adams. Their music appealed to me very, very much. Crumb with his colors, timbres, and also with that mysterious mood and atmosphere, and Adam's more with that live natural emotionality and a sense of fullness. Such a powerful music, I thought. I found out that every Wednesday night there was a contemporary music program broadcast from Austria by Vienna Radio. I could tune in and pick it up on my radio set here, because it wasn't jammed by the Soviet authorities, like the Voice of America. It was just pure music. So that's where I got my first impressions of the music that was being written in the West. And also my first doubt, and a kind of puzzlement about this music. It was the forbidden fruit, so to speak, and that's why it interested me so much. But when I took a little bite of that forbidden fruit, I experienced some sense of uh, disappointment. That's how I would put it. This is quite different from Spotify today, right? Where everything is available. I think we should meditate on this. And what about Georgi Liget? Did you have the opportunity to meet him? Before talking about Ligeti, since you mentioned Shostakovich, I have a personal memory about him. I had the opportunity to see him back in 1963 in Riga Opera, where I was playing at that time. He came to Riga because his opera Lady Macbeth, or Katerina Ismailova, as it was called then, was staged at our opera house. We had a very good conductor who built an interesting repertoire in our opera, and Lady Macbeth in Riga was the second production of that opera after its ban. Yeah, so I, I saw him then. Shostakovich attended the rehearsals for several days, and on the opening night he almost fell into the orchestra pit. You see, he was wearing very thick glasses, and when the performance was over, he came on stage to bow, and then he made a few steps forward and almost fell into the pit. Fortunately, the conductor grabbed him and held him back. Speaking of Ligeti, you know his fate, don't you? How he escaped to the West in 1956. Well, we both had contracts with the company Schott Music. So we met now and then at Schott's publishing house in Mainz. The Russian composer Rodion Shedrin was a Schott composer too. And Krzysztof Penderecki as well. 
There was an occasion when all three of us met at some shot event, and I remember that Ligeti teased Rodian Sherin by asking him, in a joking sort of way, why did you torture the Baltic people for so long? He was aware, of course, that I was from Latvia, and Sherin, of course, was from Russia. This was already in free Europe, after 1991. So there was a little irony in Ligeti's part towards Sherin, who of course was a very different Sherin in the West from what he had been in Russia. Although Sherin, I think, was never in the Communist Party. Oh, it wasn't that simple with Sherin, I think. His grandfather was a Russian Orthodox priest. I was mentioning Zilazinia and Georgi Ligeti because I was under the impression the first time I listened to this piece that there was some sort of influence of some connection with them. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I'm not that influenced by Ligeti. I don't think so. To be more accurate, I have a great respect for Ligeti. He's maybe more of a miniature composer, although he has a wonderful opera, Le Grand Macabre. I have listened to Ligeti quite a lot, and I find him very interesting. But I wouldn't say that he is my spiritual brother, if I may say so. Let's talk now about Zile Zinia and Masu Moshu Vardi, which are two pieces very intense emotionally, played very often by Latvian choirs, in particular because of historical reasons. Um, Zilazinia talk metaphorically about deportation to Gulag, and I would like to know more about the creation of these two pieces. As a matter of fact, these two pieces can be performed by good quality amateur choirs as well, so they are perhaps more likely to be heard. Alongside these two, I would mention another composition of mine called Litane. I don't know if you are aware of it. It's a choral opus which is also quite dramatic and tragic. For these compositions I used texts written by the Latvian poets Uldis Berzinsch and Maurice Chaklais. Those poems were written during the years of communist occupation, when for poets and writers it was particularly difficult to bypass censorship because everybody was waiting for the right and true words from our great poets and it was very difficult to get them published but sometimes they did get through and these two texts contain the true story of what had happened to us so I put them to music all my music is emotional. Music in general is, above all, the art of emotions. But it was during that period that I had the opportunity to work with very good choirs and to set high professional tasks. And I coped with it beautifully. 
It was also an attempt to tell through choral music the most important things that we, the Baltic composers, had to tell. I would still like to add that I consider myself a composer of instrumental rather than vocal music. During those years of occupation, I was free when writing instrumental music because nobody could control it. There is what you already said about Shostakovich that even in the worst years of Stalin's tyranny, he could still speak out in his symphonies. It's the same in my instrumental music. There I was free, and nobody could get into that territory. For example, there is the symphonic opus Lauda, which I wrote in 1985 for the occasion of the 150th anniversary of Christian's Barons the collector and publisher of Latvian folk songs. In those days it was not accepted to talk about our folklore, our traditional culture and how rich it is, because we were supposed to be building a new society, a Soviet society, and the sooner we forget our language and national culture, the better. We were supposed to turn into one great nation that will speak only Russian, and to forget our own history. Lauda was an expression of praise and exaltation to my country, to my people, an assertion that we are still alive, we still speak our language and sing our songs. And nobody could take that away from me. I think we, the Baltic composers, had this idea that it was our mission to send out a message to all good people 
that we have not given up, that we are still here, that we still have our faith and we will endure. One cannot write dozens of tracks like Zilla Zinia and According to the moment of history we are going through and the possibility of a war in Ukraine, this piece can also speak to Ukrainian and many people who live in Russia, as they were also the victims of massive deportation. For the record, this interview was made 23 of February 2022, the day before the war in Ukraine started. Yes, here is another point of view why there was, and maybe still is, such a big divide between the music written in Eastern Europe that has lived under a terrible tyranny and the music written by those who live in freedom and who take freedom for granted. The bottom line for us East European composers, the majority of us anyway, was the existential position of to be or not to be. That is to say, we have to endure, we can't give up. And music for us was all or nothing. Rather than the kind of intellectual gamesmanship that is perhaps not the most convincing way to express oneself musically. But I always say that, anyhow, there are different paths. So one thing is that we are in this situation. But the other thing, which is very important in my music and in the music of many of my colleagues, is to offer an alternative. That there is a way, and if we follow it, we will survive. To put it in other words, instead of speaking about how terrible the world is and how terrible our life is, we should show the sources of strengths for our humanity that may help us to endure and survive. Simply put, we love our country, we love our people, we respond to evil and hatred with love. And love is stronger, it will prevail. If not immediately, it will prevail in the long run. This is what I've come to believe. And this is what motivates me to write music at all, to bring love to the world. Love is the greatest power.
And coming back to Messian's great divine quartet for the end of time, he wrote it in a concentration camp. And if we think about it, we were all in one big concentration camp too. And him being in that deepest abyss, he showed through his music that power that may help us to endure. He showed that there is a way to a greater or lesser extent, we all do the same. By the way, in one of the CDs I gave to you, there is a piece called Episodi e Canto Perpetuo. It's my tribute to Olivier Messian. It contains the same number of movements as his Quartet for the End of Times. It's a little bit different, but there is also hell, and there is paradise, and the way to paradise. That, I believe, is the ultimate reason for music to be composed, or for me to compose it anyway. That's also the parallel with Messian. And also the fact that Messian wrote it in 1940 in a concentration camp, just like we wrote Zilis Zinja and everything else, and we continue to write, to show the way of light and love. You have in common with Olivier Messiaen this dimension of your work linked to faith. Messiaen was Christian very deeply. Is there this idea also for you when you mention love? I find it hard to imagine how you can write music at all if you don't believe in a higher spiritual power. A belief in something that transcends reality, but which also already there. A reference to the God of Spinoza, this is what I wrote to you in the first place when we get acquainted. I mentioned this is what the symphony voices inspired to me. I am under the impression that with this musical work you achieve the musical language you were aiming for, the one that you really cared for. I think it was a moment of transition for you and I would be curious to know more about its genesis. Speaking of the origins of the symphony voices, I received a letter from a very good long-time friend of mine, the Finnish conductor Juha Kangas, who for many years led the Austro-Bothnian Chamber Orchestra. It's based in Kokkola, a relatively small town some 600 kilometers north of Helsinki in uh, Ostrobothnia region. He found the orchestra from his students at the music school. Gradually it grew bigger and years later it became a professional orchestra. Juha Kangas had heard my music and he sent me a letter. Somehow he had secured my postal address, there were no emails at that time, and asked me if I wouldn't want to write something for his orchestra. That was the starting point. We're talking of year 1990. So I just started working on it. 
Then, in January 1991, there was this dramatic episode in our recent history when it seemed that our struggle for freedom would be crushed by Soviet tanks and people started building barricades in Riga. But in spite of everything, I worked hard and wrote the score and posted it off to Finland. <coughs> Juha Kanga sent me a telegram. We were still in the era of telegrams. And he liked the piece very much and he invited me to the premiere, scheduled for the 4th of September 1991. But shortly before that, there was the so-called August 91 putsch. The score was away in Finland and for a couple of days it seemed again that all our dreams will be crushed. But a miracle happened. The putsch failed, and for the first time in my life, I found myself in a country that has always been close to my heart, the country of Sibelius. So I was there at the first performance. The symphony has three movements, three important themes. The first movement is called Voices of Silence. Silence is such a great wonder of God. The second part is called Voices of Life, where you hear voices of birds and imitations of sounds of nature. Nature is also very important in our life. And the third part is called Voice of Conscience, voice in singular, because the voice of conscience for every person is one, individual, personal. So the piece contained references to our lived experience, recent and in general, but at the end of the symphony, the infinite, timeless silence and eternity return again, kind of a cosmic breath. That's how it rings out at the end. There is a lot of stuff in there that's important to me, and of course it's written for my favorite musical ensemble, a string orchestra, which can sing and rejoice, and which can achieve spiritual concentration and a tremendous degree of intensity. All that is contained in this symphony.
they might be something with the dates. If we think about the fact the premiere of Castillo Interior happened when the MH17 was shut down. Yeah, Yes, it was precisely on that day, 17th of July 2014, when many things came together. We were in a very beautiful small German town. It was a very nice warm evening and people were coming to the concert. And then suddenly came the news about the plane having been shot down by a Russian missile. Incidentally, it was also my late father's birthday, and it was Angela Merkel's birthday too, all on the same day. Uh, Castillo Interior, I feel, is a very special piece. Maybe I am wrong, but I feel one can understand it only as a wall. Uh, until the end of a piece, we don't manage to get its meaning properly, or I would say completely. Um, reference to Teresa of Avila is obvious, and indeed we can feel this musical work as something especially mystical. But I am under the impression this is your world heart work, which is mystical in fact. Well, yes, music can transport you to another dimension. And I think that is what actually happens to me from time to time. And then I want to pass on to my potential listener what I heard there. It is that wonder and mystery of music that I try to approach honestly and humbly. Precisely the criteria to recognize that something is a true experience, it's difficult, nearly impossible to share, and you manage to share it with us through music. Let's go now directly to my next question. Uh, when I've heard your last string quartet, quartet number six, I found it stunning beautiful. I was touched deeply and I was sad at the same time because I heard the piece of someone who thought about his own end. My wife told me, yes, this is what he said in a radio interview this morning. I feel like you managed to communicate something of your life and experience. There is acceptation in this music, serenity, especially in the last movement called Satikshana, which means a meeting. It's such a profound piece of music, and I would like to know more about how you elaborated it. Well, yes. Mm, I usually go into composing without any clear-cut plan. For me, it all happens simultaneously. The concept develops together with a piece. Speaking of the six-string quartet, it was uh, the year of Beethoven's 250th anniversary and uh, the Artemis Quartet asked me to write a piece that would also somehow tie into this overall context of Beethoven's musical heritage. And it made me think very hard about how to approach this musical giant. 
I listened to all of Beethoven's string quartets. And finally, the composition turned out actually as a retrospective of my own life, ending with a third movement, departure. You have relieved your life in this piece, and you are leaving, but it's not the end. Because, being a religious person, I believe that the spirit is eternal. And in the last moment there is this encounter in the afterworld that we don't know much about. But in that afterworld there is an encounter with that beautiful chorale of Beethoven's 15th string quartet. That's where we met. There are quotes from Beethoven's 15th quartet and light. Light is eternal. Even though there is grief and pain and passing away, the spirit is immortal. That's what I wanted to say. To speak about topic a little more casual and easy, I would like to mention that all the composers have very guilty pleasures, fortunately. For example, Shostakovich was referring soccer matches in Crimea. I've heard some gossips from a famous Latvian pianist who mentioned you were doing your gym stretching exercise in the plane when you were on tour in the United States. So, could you tell us a little more about these things? In the kitchen, I only know how to boil an egg and rice when Zintra, my wife, is away. I know absolutely none of that. My way of life is to admire and enjoy and be with nature. 
the nature of my homeland or the nature of the world as a whole, it doesn't matter. And to admire the great vast wonder of creation, looking at the stars when you can see them. So being here on Earth, just looking, observing those wonders of wonder, and I am thankful to God, the Creator, that the ability to marvel has not waned in me. It is still alive. And also the ability to rejoice in the beauty of the world in which we live. Nature. I can't do anything without nature. I can't imagine myself living in some concrete and cement jungles. I would feel like a prisoner there. And that's why I love to be at Amatsium so much. We have a house there with big windows on all sides, and you can see the snow and the rain and the wind and everything else right there in front of you. I'm not even speaking of the fact that we are blessed to have four distinct seasons that the most exotic countries don't have. All they have is a perpetual summer, something while we have the four seasons. I still have the ability to marvel and rejoice. And that's why I'm happy living in music. This program is also dedicated to the members of the Latvian diaspora who lives in Canada, United States, UK, Ireland, Australia who want maybe to get back to their roots, who wants to connect with this part of their identity. So this is a difficult question, I know, but I would like to ask, what is it to be Latvian? Well, let's start with being who you are, which is the hardest thing to put into words. I try to tell it through my work, how it feels to be Latvian. And I think that any respectable janitor who does his job honorably will say the same. He's a Latvian who is keeping the land that was given to him tidy and nice. I would say that being a Latvian is also a great privilege. Despite everything we as a nation have gone through, we haven't lost our language, our culture, our natural environment. We are still here, in our own land. And for me, to be Latvian means doing everything we can to make this land the most beautiful place in the world. It's already the most beautiful place in the world. For me, there is no better place than Latvia. It's going to be my last question and I ask to uh, all of the guests of this program What is your first memory in your childhood connected to sound or music? It's not the first, but the most vivid memory from my childhood that is related to music. It was in uh, 1958. I was 12 years old when, for the first time since World War II, uh, Richard Wagner's music was allowed to be performed in the Soviet Empire. 
Un tas bija ne vairāk, ne mazāk mūsu... Our Riga Opera House had staged Wagner's Tannhauser. My parents closely followed the developments in the local cultural and musical life, so we traveled to Riga just to attend the premiere of Tannhauser, which took place uh, in late autumn, maybe in November. That is my first visit to opera, and the effect it had on me was equal to a bomb explosion. I realized that music is going to be the most important thing in my life. I didn't know yet what was it that I was going to do in music, but I did know that music would be the foundation of my life. That's what happened. I've been told that the conductor Andris Nelsons heard Tannhauser at the opera and had a similar experience. I have this very memory too, listening to the Pilgrim Chorus on a vinyl in my grandparents' house and having a moment of complete ecstasy. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, see how, brother. <laughs> If you enjoy listening to this program, don't forget to subscribe, share on social network, that's the best way to help the growth of this channel. Don't forget that Vienna Balsi is also a YouTube channel. Thanks for listening and you will hear from us very soon.